Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Scamfluencers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This is the finale to our two-part series, Brazil Supermom. If you haven't listened to the first episode yet, I highly recommend you go back and do so. Oh, and a heads up for you all. We're taking three weeks off to work on some brand new episodes. They're all bonkers. They're really fun. We have some wild stories about scammers, imposters, and frauds. So hang tight and stay subscribed to hear about our new episodes the second they drop. Sarah, I feel like you have like a hundred siblings. And I'm curious if any of your siblings ever tried to get you to take the blame for something that they did. Okay, first of all, I only have three siblings. That's a lot. Um, And second of all, I am the baby of my family. So, of course, everyone was blaming shit on me all the time. Well, did you do it? No, I was innocent and I maintain my innocence. (laughs) Well, the situation gets dicey for Flotilise's kids really fast. Because after Anderson is murdered in June 2019, the cops have a lot of questions. I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would have a lot of questions even before the murder, but go on. (laughs) It's the morning of June 16th, 2019, and Flotilise's four-building compound in Rio de Janeiro is packed. Even more so than usual, because an entire police task force is raiding the joint. The driveway is an active crime scene. It's where, just a few hours ago, a man was gunned down. And now the police are here asking questions and searching every nook and cranny for evidence. They, and all of Brazil, want to know, who killed Anderson de Carmo? Yeah, I'm also very curious. There is a very long line of suspects here. Well, one of the cops that's handling the case is Detective Reynaldo Leal. He's in his late 40s, and let me tell you, Sarah, he is a ginger beefcake. He's got these big biceps and mutton chops. It's perfect for his side gig, which is singing and playing guitar in a heavy metal cover band. Um, good for him? Everybody's got to relax somehow. Okay, (laughs) and here's the other kind of bonkers thing is they have other things in common, which is that the detective has also been in a movie based on his life about a drug bust he was a part of. I need this trend of starring in your own biopic (laughs) to come to North America because it's genius. Well, Detective Leal starts interviewing everyone who lives with Flotilise. And right away, he realizes that their stories are not adding up. Some of the family members say Anderson was killed as a part of a robbery gone wrong. Except no one is willing to say that they actually saw burglars trying to break in. And Flotilise... She's just sobbing uncontrollably the whole time that the cops are raiding her home. Yeah, that is definitely one way to not have to speak is to just sob uncontrollably. Yeah, I don't really think it's working because Detective Leal can sense that something is fishy here. So he orders background checks on the entire family and he reviews the security camera footage. The cameras actually point away from the compound, which doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? And so the cameras don't catch the attack But what they do catch is a teenager with close-cropped hair pulling up in an Uber around 2.45 a.m., which is just 15 minutes before the shooting. And in the footage, he runs into the house while the Uber waits for him. And then, a few minutes later, he jumps back in the car and speeds away. Detective Leal recognizes him from the background checks that he ran. This kid's name is Lucas. 
He's an 18-year-old who Floatalise adopted as a teenager, and he has an outstanding warrant for selling drugs. So Detective Leal starts with the basics. What was Lucas doing in the house just before the shooting? And Lucas explains. He'd been out selling drugs. You know, normal stuff. And then he stopped by Floatalise's house to stash his unsold goods so that he could go to a club. How crazy could the truth be where you're telling a detective, <laughs> sir, I was selling drugs, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, Detective Leal keeps pressing because he can sense that Lucas knows more. So he takes a calculated risk and he bluffs really hard. He says that the police have found the Uber driver and that he's talking. Ooh, yeah. Well, the bluff works. And once Lucas starts talking, he doesn't stop. He says the same Uber driver gave him a ride a few weeks ago into a nearby favela where he bought a gun. But he says he bought it for someone else, someone even closer to Floatalise. And when Detective Leal follows this lead, he uncovers exactly how dysfunctional this family is and how many deep fissures have formed between Flo Delise's children. Soon, Brazil's premier evangelical dynasty will completely fall apart. From Wondery, I'm Sachi Cole. And I'm Sarah Hagee. And this is Scamfluencers. In our last episode, Flotilisa's pastor husband was shot in their driveway. And she and her kids told the cops it was just a robbery gone wrong. But their stories are falling apart really fast. It's a public spectacle of global proportions. This is episode two of Brazil's Supermom. I'm calling it Bad at Dying. It's June 17th, 2019, the day of Anderson's funeral and the day after Detective Leal interrogated Lucas, Flotilise's newly adopted son. And the cops are in the parking lot and they're blocking traffic. They're wearing bulletproof vests and holding automatic weapons. And they're here because they have interest in one particular car, the one with Flotilise inside. They drag someone out and they make an arrest. It's Flavio, Flotilise's biological son. Oh my God. I, for some reason, wasn't expecting the biological kids that she prioritized to really be caught in anything. Yeah. Flavio is in his late 30s and he's lean with dark hair and a mustache. And he wears square glasses with transition lenses. You know, the, the ones that turn into sunglasses when you walk outside. Yeah. Well, the police take Flavio down to the homicide division, which is just this plain-looking office building across from a military compound. And there, Detective Leal grills Flavio. He's there because Lucas told the police that Flavio is the one who pulled the trigger. Sarah, what do you think Flavio does next? Honestly, based on this family and how the story's going, I genuinely cannot predict what Flavio does next. He could confess. He could run out there. He can, like, ingest a cyanide capsule that's in his tooth. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this clearly isn't a family of criminal masterminds. So Flavio confesses to Leal right away. Oh, my God. Well, we don't know for sure why he shot Anderson, but Flavio is just a few years younger than Anderson was. And he never liked that Flotilise remarried. 
or that she adopted dozens of kids when he was still a teenager. That's fair. And at some point when he was a kid, Fabio actually left. He went to go live with his grandmother. But now, at nearly 40 years old, Flavio is back living in the compound. Two days after his confession, police search the house for Flavio's cell phone. And instead, they find the murder weapon, a 9 millimeter semi-automatic gun stashed above Flavio's wardrobe. And they find evidence that proves Flavio used the gun. Sarah, <laughs> I'm truly beside myself about this detail. Can you guess what evidence it is that they found? Um, I don't want to imagine it. Just tell me. What is it? Sarah, police find on the gun Flavio's pubes. Um, His pubes. I don't know how a significant amount of pubic hair could be on a gun. <laughs> Once they find his pubic hair on the weapon, everyone knows for sure Flavio is the one who shot and killed Anderson. But almost immediately, it becomes clear that there's more to the story. Like, a lot more. I mean, obviously, there's a pubic hair on a gun. Go on. <laughs> Someone in the family wants to tell the whole ugly truth. And their testimony will be the most damning of all. Soon after the police question Flavio and he confesses, they get an unexpected visit from one of Flotilise's grown adopted sons, a man named Wagner. And he tells them he's ready to talk. Wagner is one of the five kids Flotilise adopted first. And she sometimes calls those five kids the first generation. Yeah, everybody wants their mom to rank them. You want to know exactly where you are in your mother's yeah. heart. You know? No unhealthy dynamic there. No, it's totally fine. Flotilise would bring the first generation on her midnight missions to drug dens and coked out dance parties looking for lost souls to heal. Wagner says that he was in awe of Flotilise. He was honored to be in on her holy mission. He moved in with Flotilise when he was 12, and he has stuck really close to her, even as an adult. He became a pastor in the Flotilise ministry, and he married one of Flotilise's former assistants. And Wagner actually got into politics before his adoptive mom did. He's a city council member, and so he and Flotilise aren't just family, they're political allies. But some recent events have Wagner rethinking everything. Wagner says that after Flotilise got elected to Congress, she started acting differently. Plus, she started complaining about how Anderson was controlling their finances. Wagner always looked up to Anderson as a father figure or a mentor. So he told Flotilise to just go talk to him. But Flotilise was way past talking. The first thing that really worried Wagner was when Anderson checked into the hospital less than 48 hours after Flotilise was elected. He had a fever, diarrhea, and severe stomach pain. Over the next few months, Anderson went to the hospital five more times for acute stomach aches. At the time, Wagner was worried about Anderson's health. And then he started to hear things that gave him even more cause for concern. Sarah, do you remember Flotilise's daughter, Simone? Yeah, Simone is her biological daughter. And my favorite fact, yeah. she dated Anderson before Flotilise dated him and married him. Yeah, truly exceptional memory for the absolute horrors of this tale. Well, Wagner tells police about a conversation he overheard one day. Simone told Flotilise, Mom, now that you're a congresswoman, we don't need him anymore, do we? 
And another day, Floatilis told Wagner that Anderson wouldn't make it through this year because he was hindering the work of God. Um, okay. Yeah. And just in case this isn't clear enough yet, one of his adopted brothers told Wagner not to eat or drink anything at their mother's house because Floatilis is trying to kill Anderson. They were just kind of like, yeah, just be chill, yeah. but don't eat anything because, you know, so many people, so many cooks in the kitchen, you might end up eating Anderson's poison food. But listen, at least Wagner went to Floatilise, but she denied it. She said she was mixing Anderson's regular medication with juice because he didn't like taking pills. And Wagner says that he believed her. But on June 16th, when Wagner gets the early morning call that Anderson has been shot, his wife tells him, they did it. They killed your father. At the hospital and then at the funeral, Wagner says he could tell that Flotilise wasn't really crying. He says she was just acting. There was no denying it anymore. Wagner had to face the truth that his mother was a clear suspect in his father's murder. Wagner readies himself for the fight of his life. Detective Leal sees Wagner as a star witness. I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? Like, he's really got the juice about his own family. Yeah, he's, he's on the inside. He knows everything. Yeah, and he's willing to cooperate fully. So Leal starts building a case. He asks about Wagner's upbringing, how things really worked in Flotilise's house, and it's not the pretty picture she painted for the media, unsurprisingly. Wagner says that the house was overflowing with people, which I guess makes sense if you have, like, 55 children. There were kids sleeping on the sitting room floor and under the kitchen table. A dozen babies would crowd into one cot. And he says that every time somebody sat on the sofa, Sarah, they would get scabies. She didn't have enough money at first yeah. to take care of a few children, let alone 55. But here's the thing. When the first five adopted kids, those first-generation children, when they moved in with Flotilise in the early 90s, things weren't so bad. Wagner says they were just completely overwhelmed by Flotilise's presence. But according to many of the kids who were adopted later, the biological and first-gen kids got preferential treatment. And some say Flotilise and Anderson kept a special, better-stocked fridge in their room, and only the older kids had access to it. The younger kids ate bread for breakfast, had rice, pasta, and sausage for lunch and for dinner. This is insane. And at one point, Flotilise started assigning newly adopted kids to older kids who became responsible for their care. One daughter says that Flotilise never acted as a real mother to her. She says that when she got her first period, her appointed brother had to explain what to do. If my brother was the person who had to explain my first period to me, I would... Uh, build a boat intended to sink and float away into the ocean to my own death. <laughs> Absolutely. So Detective Leal is starting to piece together a picture of this incredibly complicated family dynamic. And based on the interviews he's done with Lucas and Wagner, he sees that there is a schism in the family. There are those who are loyal to Flotilise and those who are loyal to Anderson. And Lucas tells the police that Simone acted kind of like a consigliere in the house. She would watch the other kids closely and report any misbehavior to Flotilise. That is terrifying. One of Flotilise's, I guess, cops living in your home. And I imagine there were lots of dynamics about having her biological daughter be the consigliere amongst all the adopted kids. Of course. Of course there was like a total hierarchy here. Yeah. 
And that power struggle between these two splinter cells, it got worse when Flotilis was elected. Simone later says that Flotilis was a puppet in Anderson's hand, that he controlled her in every way. In political meetings, Simone says Anderson took the lead and wouldn't even let Flotilis speak. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's so hard to know what the truth is here because, of course, Simone is going to be saying that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has an agenda in this story. Detective Leal thinks Flotilis felt stuck and that she wanted to be free of Anderson's vice-like grip over her career and her finances. I mean, I think the religious aspect of this is so potent. She felt like she was one with God and she would have eternal salvation because she was doing the right thing, even though she wouldn't just get a divorce, which, you know, that's neither here nor there at this point. But Flotilis felt forced to make a choice. And what she chooses takes her into the darkest possible timeline. That's impossible. There's no darker timeline. Oh, baby girl, it gets worse. I feel like a legend. So after Wagner starts cooperating with the investigation in June 2019, Detective Leal and his team round up all the siblings that Wagner identified. And he interrogates them separately so they can't compare notes. And again, these are not criminal masterminds, so their stories all fall apart. But that helps police build out a theory of the case. Sarah, do you have any guesses on, on what the theory is? I feel like Flotilise made it clear that she wanted Anderson to die. Simone was like, gotcha. This is what my boss wants. We need to kill Anderson. So you guys figure it out. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess that's close. The detective and his team start piecing together all the events leading up to Anderson's murder. They check the family's mobile devices, their Google searches. And Sarah, I got to tell you some of the searches that came up on three of the kids' phones. I would really appreciate if you could read it to me. Someone badass. Second search. Assassin. Third search. Poison to kill a person that is lethal and easy. I just, I, I have to reiterate here. I know we're talking about someone's kids. These are adults. They're still grown-ups. Fully grown people. And also, like, they are plotting a murder. Okay, when someone Googles this, what do they expect to show up? I mean, Sarah, I, I think you should Google it and find out. You're not putting me I, in that position. I'm, okay, I'm sorry, you know you're a journalist and you don't want to do your due diligence by Googling assassin, assassin where, where to find. Where to find. It's all Assassin's Creed stuff. <laughs> Did you Google Assassin's yeah. where- <laughs> All right, Sarah. So what the investigation team eventually learns is that Flotilise's child assassins, though, again, they are adults, they actually try the poison route first. In the fall of 2018, they start lacing Anderson's food with arsenic and later with cyanide. And he did get really sick, but he managed to recover each time. Someone was selling them fake cyanide. 100%. But obviously, the family was having a bit of a hard time getting rid of Anderson. And one daughter says that Flotilise told her, if you want to kill him, it will have to be bullets. And Flotilise denies this. In any event, when the poisoning doesn't work, the kids loyal to Flotilise hire a hitman to kill Anderson. Oh, yeah, from Where to Find Assassin. Assassin Where to Find. Yeah. And this hitman is supposed to ambush Anderson as he leaves church one day. 
But Anderson leaves in a borrowed car, which foils that plan completely. This is like a screwball comedy at this point. Like, oh, we can't kill him. And then after the hitman failed and the poisoning didn't work, Simone actually asks her boyfriend, a former cop, to kill Anderson. But he says no. And then they break up shortly after. Wow, if their relationship can't withstand that, then probably a good yeah, idea. they probably weren't meant to be. And a witness later tells police that Simone said that Anderson is bad at dying. Which is arguably true. He has survived more assassination attempts than I think anybody I know. Well, the child assassins do what so many organized crime families do. They turn to one of their own to take on the most grisly task. Their most recently adopted brother, Lucas. He's just 17 at the time, so still underage, still a child. And this family looks at one of its youngest members and sees a fall guy. That is so upsetting. I hate these people. And Lucas isn't even living with them at the time. He tells Detective Leal that Anderson was always lecturing him about his life choices, like his drug habit. And he found it so tiresome that he moved out. So he's crashing at the mechanic shop where he works. One day, he gets a WhatsApp message from another adopted kid at Flotilise's house. It's one who's loyal to Flotilise. And she says that no one in the house can stand Anderson anymore. And that the family has an offer, one they hope he won't refuse. Lucas tells the cops that they offered to pay him the equivalent of about 850 American dollars. Plus, he would be able to keep Anderson's collection of wristwatches. Lucas says no, absolutely not. But the family keeps bugging him. And by the way, this is all happening in early 2019, which is around the time that Flotilise is sworn into office. This is crazy. She's being sworn into office, obviously got a bunch of people to vote for her. Right. And she also got elected in part because she's bragging about all these kids that she takes care of, right? Wow. Yeah. Eventually, Lucas does agree to go get the gun. But Detective Leal figures out that at some point, Flavia was chosen to do the actual shooting. Some of the other kids were supposed to make it look like an attempted robbery gone wrong. And still others were supposed to distract potential witnesses. So everyone has a role in this murder. It really is a family affair. And again, it's all happening while Flotilise, an elected official, is making these heart-wrenching public speeches about the power of adoption. Like this one, posted to her YouTube channel just two months before Anderson's death. She's talking about eliminating the red tape around adoptions in Brazil. Well, finally, in the early hours of June 16th, all of that planning comes to a head. Anderson is gunned down in his own home. And when Detective Leal arrives at the murder scene, he has one burning question. It's a question that'll unlock the entire case. Were the Flotilise loyalists acting alone, or were they taking direction from a higher authority? A few months into the investigation, the cops hit a wall. Flotilise and Anderson's cell phones are both missing. Detective Leal and his team spend ages trying to guess Anderson's password to download the data from the cloud. And Sarah, one day, it works. What? It was password. I don't know what it is. I wish I knew. But 
Whatever the case is, they guess right, and all of Anderson's digital history is suddenly at their fingertips. And Leah says they understood a lot more after that. By August of 2020, six more family members are in police custody. Oh my God. Yeah. So the police have sussed out the family criminal conspiracy. But there's one suspect who's going to be a lot tougher to smoke out of her compound. The godmother herself, Flo Delis. That's because, Sarah, in Brazil, high-ranking politicians cannot be arrested unless they're caught red-handed committing a crime. The only way to prosecute Flo Delis is if lawmakers revoke her immunity. Or, basically, if they vote to impeach her entirely. And I mean, this law, I I get it. It makes sense. It's there to protect them from political persecution, right? Like, this is a country with a recent history of military juntas and other violent political unrest. Meanwhile, the police are working nonstop to build an airtight case against Flotilis. And they start by combing over Flotilis' story about the night before Anderson was killed, which was their big date night. Sarah, do you remember it? You're torturing me right now because you know how much I hated it. Well, you, you got to tell it. Tell it back to uh, me. <laughs> they go to the beach. They eat fried fish. They engage in teenage activity on top of a car. That is truly an insane way to build an alibi. To be like, yeah, I didn't murder my husband. We actually had an amazing night that involved boinking on a Honda. <laughs> I guess she was trying to. Uh, build an aura of being so in love that they had to have sex on a car. Absolutely. Well, then the police learn something that seems to prove their theory is right. They hear that two weeks after Flotilise was elected, in October 2018, she told one of her sons, I will find a way out because I cannot separate so I don't scandalize the church. This is it. This is the motive they've been looking for. So police charge Flotilise with, quote, orchestrating the homicide, enlisting several of her grown children to take part in the crime, and attempting to disguise it as an armed robbery. The other shoe has finally dropped. And now, Flotilise's entire empire will begin to crumble. So as soon as she's indicted, Flotilise's political party suspends her. And as the investigation continues, witness testimony gets leaked and former and current adoptees all paint a much grimmer portrait of the so-called mother of the nation. At least three families come forward claiming they left their kids with Flotilise during a time of personal trouble and could never get them back. That's actually what happened to Wagner. His birth mother tried to get a hold of him after he left, but he didn't return her calls. Flotilise told him that he didn't need that family anymore. Yeah, that level of brainwashing and manipulation is so insane. And also, it feels like it's the only way you could have 55 children, you know? Yeah, and Flotilise expected her kids to, like, kind of worship her. Flotilise told Wagner and the other boys that she had died and was reincarnated as an angel and that they'd been sent to protect her. Wagner says she once gave him a dagger, which she said was to kill the beast. And this is when it starts to, like, really become cult-like, you know what I mean? Yeah, there is something really blasphemous about her behavior. Like, Wagner says that he was put through a purification process where he was locked in a room for 21 days. Other kids told police that they had similar experiences with even darker consequences. 
At least one former adoptee told police that he and Flotilise had a sexual relationship. And to be clear, Flotilise denies all of this, but it's really predatory behavior. Yeah, I mean, you know, she gave them this idea that this is their only home, where they belonged, like that they were a part of something greater. And again, that that's how you really manipulate people. Yeah, and despite the allegations flying around her, Flotilise declares her innocence. And she's still willing to do anything to protect herself, even if it means sacrificing more of her family. In the fall of 2020, Flotilise makes her most brazen move yet to clear her own name and the name of one of her favorite kids, Flavio. She writes a letter claiming that Wagner directed Lucas, the teen who bought the gun, to kill her husband, and that Lucas was the one who fired the murder weapon. Another biological son gets the letter to Lucas in prison, somehow, and tells him to copy the letter in his own handwriting and submit it as evidence. This is intended to clear Flavio, who confessed to police that he killed Anderson, but then retracted it. Flotilise promises Lucas that if he takes the fall for the murder, she'll stand by him. This is absolutely bananas. This won't, this can't even work. Like, you're cooked, lady. Yeah. Instead, Lucas tells investigators exactly what Flotilise is up to. Here's a clip from the Brazilian news site Globo.com. He's telling the Congressional Ethics Committee that Flotilise wrote the fake letter and sent it to him. Her signature was even on the original. And then after that, Flotilise gets forgery charges tacked onto her rap sheet. Her son, who gave the letter to Lucas, is arrested. And so now, all three of her biological kids are in jail. Cursed. Absolutely cursed. Flavio gets a really stiff sentence for killing Anderson. In November 2021, he was sentenced to 33 years in prison. Lucas gets nine years for purchasing the gun. I feel really bad for Lucas. Yeah. And to a point, I do kind of feel somewhat bad for Flavio because it's like he was born into this awful, awful dynamic. And now the ethics committee is voting on whether to impeach Flotilise and strip her of her immunity. And for the first time in her life, Flotilise discovers that she can't charm her way out of this one. On the day of her impeachment vote in August 2021, Flotilise walks into Brazil's Chamber of Deputies. And the space is this massive, futuristic round room with a blue carpet and soaring ceilings. It looks like a Shatner-era Star Trek scene. And Flotilise is wearing a modest floral dress. Her long wig falls in her face. She steps to the podium to address her fellow federal deputies, and she is begging them not to impeach her. Here, watch this clip from YouTube. A Flodilice que está aqui está destruída. Here, Flodilice is destroyed, she says. She says, I know I'm innocent and I will prove it. She begs for due process, and then she adds, don't impeach me. I'm innocent, and you'll regret it. I don't think she really wants due process at this point. No. If that was a thing that was available or, like, an option, none of this would have happened because she would have been in jail years ago. Yeah. Well, it doesn't work anyway. On August 11th, 2021, 
by an overwhelming 437 to 7 vote, the Brazilian lower house votes to impeach Flotilice. I would love to know who those seven stragglers are. I know you would too, Sarah. I want to take a peek into their brains. Mm-hmm. They should be donated to science, yes. And Flotilise calls the decision cruel and cowardly. That same day, she posts a video to social media. No wig, no makeup. Listen to this. Olá, gente. She says, the day nobody wished for has arrived. I'm being arrested for something I did not do. Pray for me. And then also in this clip, there's like a bunch of kids running around in the background. It's it's astounding that she's still making these videos. Hide, Flotilise. Your days are numbered. She does not hide. Two days after she's impeached, Flotilise is taken to prison. She's escorted to a police car in the same driveway where Anderson was shot, clutching a Bible. She shouts, faith in God. The Bible is comically large. (laughs) It is such a big Bible. It is the size of her entire torso. Oh my God. And her mugshot goes viral. Do you want to take a look? Okay, I just need to say, this is Flo Delise as I have never seen her before. Okay, It's a very unflattering mugshot. Also, she's not wearing her signature caramel colored wig. And she almost looks like a completely different person. The look on her face is one of like, rage. how dare this be happening? Yeah, a lot of entitlement, a lot of rage. And it's kind of like the first time she's been held accountable for anything. At this point, it seems like Flo Delise has finally been brought to justice. She's been stripped of her political career, her gospel singing, her ministry, and her family is completely splintered. But she never once accepted blame. And she acted like she was untouchable. You know what? She still has some true believers. On Instagram, she still has 859,000 followers. And someone is clearly monitoring the account because it's still being updated and I could only find positive, supportive comments. Okay, um, you telling me this isn't news because after we recorded the first episode, uh-huh. I followed her instantly. <laughs> and let me tell you, it is, she, whoever's in control of this is posting a lot. Yeah. Like I had to mute Flotilise. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next chapter for Flotilise begins at her criminal trial. Five of her kids are standing trial as well. I think she is a prime example of a generational scam influencer. And I'll tell you why. Okay. This started before the internet Mm -hmm. was a thing. And she was able to influence a nation into being like, this woman is an angel for adopting 55 children. It was always the Flo Lee show. It was always only about her power and how she was able to convince people to do that and stop drug dealers from doing this. Like... And she continued on this con for so long. Yeah, I think anytime you combine a scam with like internet influence, but also religion, you can get away with so much. People are far less willing to be critical of something if you say you're doing it on behalf of God. You know, it's so unimaginable, the scope of this, that knowing it's possible is like a whole new world was created in my mind. (laughs) Sarah, you are right. This is one of the most twisted stories I have ever heard. And I don't know how we're going to top this story on our show. You'll have to keep listening to find out. And until then, remember, divorce is always an option. This is a good lesson for us all. 
Until next week. This is episode two of our two-part series, Brazil's Supermom. I'm Sachi Cole. And I'm Sarah Haggie. And a reminder to you all, our scam fam, we're going on break for three weeks. You know that's a long time to go without a juicy scam story, but stay strong. The stories we have queued up for you, well, let's just say they're worth the wait. We used many sources in our research. A few that were particularly helpful were John Lee Anderson's article at The New Yorker and Tom Phillips's report for The Guardian. And just a quick note about our scenes. In most cases, we can't know the exact details about what happened, but everything in our show is grounded in research. Carol Perez wrote this episode. Additional writing by Sarah Enney and us, Sachi Cole and Sarah Haggy. Our senior producer is Jen Swan. Brian Taylor White is our producer. Our associate producers are Charlotte Miller and Tate Busby. Our senior story editor is Rachel B. Doyle. Sound design is by Jay Rothman. Additional audio assistance provided by Adrian Tapia. Our music supervisor is Scott Velasquez for Freeze on Sync. Our executive producers are Janine Cornelow, Stephanie Jens, and Marsha Louie for Wondery. I'm Carrie Mulligan, the host of I Hear Fear, a new anthology series of terror. The stories in this podcast are things that people don't want to talk about when the sun's out and the world's supposed to make sense. But you and I know better, don't we? We know that the best horror stories are the ones we tell each other in the dark. So turn off your lights and close your eyes. In each episode of I Hear Fear, you'll be treated to a new psychological thriller. A forest monster who lures teens into the woods and never lets them return. A line of beauty products that takes the search for youth to dark extremes. And an EDM party that turns deadly when the DJ takes over more than just the dance floor. Strap in as these twisted stories and paranormal events take you on a suspenseful and thrilling ride. I Hear Fear will introduce immersive horror and lead you straight into the heart of darkness. Follow I Hear Fear on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to I Hear Fear early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.